I'm Bradley Tusk. Welcome back to Firewall. Uh, my guest today is Ian Koss. Ian is the narrator and producer, along with Isabel Hibbard, of a really amazing nine-episode podcast series uh, called and About the Big Dig that Hugo and I just loved and wanted to have him on talk about it. So, Ian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah. So um, just quickly for the listeners who, who might not know, like, what was The Big Dig? Yeah. So The Big Dig is the most expensive highway project in American history. The basic idea was to tear down an elevated highway that ran through the center of Boston and put the whole thing underground. And this happened in the roughly through the 90s and 2000s. It got a pretty bad reputation at the time for being extremely expensive, extremely slow, something of a boondoggle or a fiasco. Um, and so I set out recently to kind of reassess that narrative in history and try and understand what made this project so difficult and hopefully learn some lessons from it. So, but what prompted that, right? I mean, is it just yeah. that you had a historical fascination with the big dig or like something led to you pitching somebody to yeah. put money in to do this, right? Yeah. So I think for me, the point of interest came from this disconnect I experienced where, so I'm of the age that I grew up during the big dig. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts. I heard about the project kind of in the background and it was always you know, about how terrible it was, you know, how it was a disaster and, you know, what a shame. Fast forward, I live in the city of Boston and I live with the fruits of the project. Um, you know, there's now a greenway through the heart of downtown where that elevated highway used to be. There's now a whole new tunnel to the airport. There's this iconic bridge over the Charles River. There's all this new parkland that was created. So I, I see what the project resulted in in the kind of decades afterwards and it was hard for me to square that with yeah all the sort of terrible news i'd heard about it growing up um so that was my entry point was trying to reconcile those two things and, and were, were your the people that you had to pitch who, who ran the station were they like awesome let's do this or did it take some convincing? <laughs> i mean one of the wonderful things about the big dig story this is just like as a storyteller right is that anybody who passed through the city of Boston roughly in the 1980s, 90s, or 2000s had some kind of contact with this story, some experience, some memory of it. It was truly unavoidable. And so what I found as I started you know, developing this idea and talking about it with people, especially here in Boston, everyone I talked to would be like, oh man, I remember this. Like, oh yeah, I had an uncle who did that. Um, so I think I quickly realized that this was a pretty powerful story that resonated with a lot of people. Um, and I think the, the attitude from the station, so I produced it with uh, GBH News in Boston, you know, our one of our public broadcasters here in Boston. And they were immediately, I think they immediately saw the, the interest and potential for this story, especially, you know, in light of all the infrastructure challenges our country faces today. Um, and then, it, but it came along with this concern of like, this is a big, complicated, and in some ways sensitive story. We need to, we need to proceed carefully and get this right. Um, so I would say that it was kind of a mix of interest and caution. And so is that why, because, you know, when I realized there were nine episodes, I'm like, how is he going to keep this interesting for nine <laughs> episodes? And like, they're pretty long episodes, too. Yeah. Um, did, 
did you go in thinking it needed to be that long or was it more once you got that feedback and you realized there were just so many different perspectives that you had to mm -hmm. capture that, that that's what it required? My co-producer, Isabel, and I like to joke that uh, creating this podcast kind of came to resemble the big dig itself. There's like this meta quality where we started with a budget and we, <laughs> you know, and we started with a timeline. And at first we thought it was going to be eight episodes. We were going to be done in May. And then it was nine episodes and it came out in September. Um, and, and so there is a quality to this story where you think you think you can see the whole of it, but there's but there's always more to come. So to your question, to some extent, yeah, it grew in the process of creating it, much like the big dig grew in scope and scale. Um, I, I think we always knew it was going to be a substantial piece of reporting and documentary. Like I said, I pitched it at, at eight episodes and it came in at nine. So um, it did grow, but we always knew or at least I think I always knew that what I wanted to do was tell a long sweep of history because there are many, there's been a lot of ink spilled about this project um, here and elsewhere. And what I wanted to do was provide the, the long arc to see it from its very earliest genesis and conception all the way through its completion and its impacts. Cause that's what I feel like no one had done before and what I felt like I could contribute. And the thing that you did that made, I think, me like it so much and, and why I think it's done so well is unlike a lot of media that we see today, you really put the effort in to capture everyone's different perspective. And there really aren't heroes and villains. I and mean, Bechtel kind of comes close to being a villain, mm -hmm. I guess. But overall, yeah. it's lots of different people who are humans, therefore good and bad with being yeah needs and motivations and you know it was the, the the project was the result of weighing and competing all of these different things and i think you, you you took the time to capture that and i think not just took the time but i think kind of went against the trend where it feels like most these these days in media it's sort of everything is black and white on one side of the yeah. spectrum or the other um and what i enjoyed so much about this was like for example, you had Democratic and Republican governors going through the project and like yeah. neither, you know, well, wasn't evil for being a Republican and Dukakis wasn't a right. Democrat and they were right. all people. So, so let's start on the project itself. It starts off because there's this highway going right through the middle of Boston. Right. So why? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> yes. I mean, Boston, like most American cities, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, built urban expressways, right? And it was sort of part of that whole urban renewal era. Um, it was part of white flight, you know, where, you know, the city's population was going out to the suburb, suburbs and, you know, the cities wanted these highways to bring people into jobs in the city center. And at, at that point, people thought that was the future of transportation and urban planning. So Boston goes along with that, builds this road called the Central Artery, um, it's an elevated road, six lanes wide. It cuts straight through the heart of downtown. What's important to know about the central artery is that even among elevated highways in this country, it was especially bad, notoriously bad for a few, not just because it destroyed homes or separated neighborhoods, but because functionally it had a lot of issues. It was one of the earliest elevated highways built anywhere in the country. Um, it did not conform to all the rules that were laid out 
by the interstate program that were designed to make these roads actually function. For example, in most interstates, there's like rules about how close the exits can be, you know, because if you have constant exits and people are getting on and off, then the traffic just gridlocks. Well, the central artery didn't follow that rule. It had these, it had 34 on and off ramps in the span of four miles, right? So there was just constant traffic coming on and coming off. The lanes were too narrow. The turns were too tight. Um, it was just a really dysfunctional road. The accident rate on this road was something like four times the national average for urban interstates of its kind. So basically you have this really messed up road that has also divided the heart of a you know classic American city. And so there's, I think, a potent combination of political pressure that develops around this, where both the, you know, like the transportation people, the highway people, the business people, they want to see this road dealt with. And also the community activists, the environmentalists. Um, you, so you can kind of see how a, a bipartisan kind of multifaceted coalition comes around, comes together around the idea of doing something about this road. Right. So. That comes together, but nonetheless, I mean, even in its original sort of, even before it kind of grew out of control, even the original concept of taking this major highway and buried underground is not a simple project, right? Yeah. And so so what did it take to get all the sort of different people together, at least for the initial concept? Yeah. Um, and how hard was that? You mean politically getting everyone together? Yeah, politically yeah. And, and financially. Yeah. Well, a big piece of it that I haven't really mentioned yet, which if you listen to the show, I mean, you'll, you'll get the whole drip, drip, drip of it. But a big part of the politics was this grand bargain that happens in 1983. So this is when the project is just getting underway. Because really, the big dig, to understand it, it's actually two mega projects rolled into one. One mega project is tearing down that elevated central artery. The other mega project is building a new tunnel under the harbor to the airport. This is really important because there was, for years in the state of Massachusetts, this kind of back and forth between people who wanted to do one project, people wanted to do the other, right? Some people wanted to tear down the central artery, rebuild it underground. Some people wanted the new tunnel to the airport. And they go back and back, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, in 1983, what happens is that Governor Michael Dukakis basically says, fine, we'll do both. And that is that compromise, that alliance between these two projects that were in many ways politically opposed. Um, that's what creates the political capital, the political will to then push this project forward. At that point, it then has to navigate the federal bureaucracy, which is a whole other story. Ronald Reagan gets involved. Um, and, and it sort of has to pass all these other hurdles. But I think what keeps the momentum going is that alliance, that there is a strong bipartisan business community, environmentalist, activist, et cetera, coalition that's all come together behind this project. And, and one of the things that I, I thought made the, the series work especially well is most of the story is local, right? You're talking about yeah. Local regulators, local bureaucrats, local reporters, local community members, but then you sprinkle in enough famous people yeah. that if someone would be like, "Well, I'm I'm not from Boston, I don't care about Boston," so like 
Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan and Michael yep. Dukakis and Mitt Romney, even the Kennedys show up. Like, yep. Yep. as a result, did you have to think about kind of the balance of for a, you know, presumably, hopefully national audience of how local it should be compared to how much do we need to sort of have some things that other people not yeah. recognize? Yeah. So one of the choices we made early on in the producing the series was we hired an editor um, who is an amazing collaborator. Her name, her name is Lacey Roberts, and she lives in Montana. She has never lived in Boston. Okay. Um, and I think that was very important to have somebody in the production team who was listening and reviewing every episode who had zero context um, for Boston, geographically, politically, historically. She knows, you know, what the average, <laughs> I think what the average American knows about the big dig. So that was very important. And it, it was important to us, you know, the whole team, that we tell the story in a way that was accessible and meaningful to a national audience. Of course, if you live here, if you know the players, if you know the places, it's going to resonate in a slightly different way. And that's great. And, um, you know, we've heard from a lot of people locally who are like, wow, this, this project was like made for me. Um, but, but also I, we've heard from like, I got an email last week from a city councilor in Ottawa, Canada, who is like, we've been trying to build this light rail system for years and listening to this story about the big dig in Boston. It's like every single thing that we've been through. Um, did it give them a little bit of hope that some perseverance will get them there? <laughs> or did it make them want to just scrap the project entirely? I, I took the tone I took was hopeful, okay. but um, I'd have to go back and look. So, uh, you know, it's when, when people talk about sort of when politics, you know, there was a better time, the example you often hear is Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan being able yeah. to work well together. Yep. In this case, <laughs> Reagan hated, hated this project. Yeah, he vetoed the spending for it. It got overturned, um, meaning a lot of Republican senators voted against their own president, including one guy who's now named and supposed to name then, but has turned into be Mitch McConnell. Right. Uh, so, how does you know Reagan is this this powerful president? He's got the eleventh commandment of "Thou shalt never criticize a Republican" or whatever it is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden. Uh, money for a, a blue state that's never going to be a red state, right? Right, um, right. Gets protected by, you know, his own members in the Senate. How did that happen? Yeah, it's complicated. I think, so this happens in the third episode of our series. And I see this as an interesting case study in the fraying of the bipartisan infrastructure consensus. So if we look at the longer arc of infrastructure spending in this country, um, really through the 50s, 60s, 70s, most of the 80s, kind of into the 90s, there is a pretty strong bipartisan coalition around infrastructure and highways in particular. Um, these are popular bills. They benefited many states, you know, so there was broad impact, broad support. Um, and of course, we live now in an era, you know, once we get into the 2000s, I mean, uh, Trump and Obama both tried to pass infrastructure bills and failed. Obama, uh, Biden rather did pass mm -hmm. an, a bipartisan bill, but it's barely, barely bipartisan, right? It just sneaks by. Yep. So I think, again, if we're looking at that longer sweep of history, there was a kind of bipartisan co consensus coalition 
it fell apart at some point. And I think the 1980s is an interesting moment when we can see that, see the cracks showing. Um, so it's, it's not as simple as saying, you know, bipartisanship was over and it's not as simple as saying, you know, bipartisanship was robust because on the, on the one hand in the 1980s, like you said, you have Reagan vetoing this bill. It does become quite partisan in that it's Reagan versus Tip O'Neill, right? This like giant of the Republican party, this giant of the democratic party. But then at the same time, you do have this bipartisan coalition that comes together ultimately to override Reagan's veto and pass the bill. And that is because these highway bills were still broadly popular. Um, One little kind of anecdote that I find fascinating is that one of the ways that the Massachusetts, the, the legislative, you know, coalition was able to get support behind this bill was by attaching to it the raising of the federal speed limit on interstates. So if you go back to the the oil embargo years of the 70s, I don't know if you recall this, but you know Carter lowered the speed limit to 55 to save gas, and that was, you know, out in the western states they hated that, you know, like in Montana, the idea of, you know, only being able to drive 55 miles an hour was just, you know, awful. And so in that same bill that funds the big dig, they snuck in a line that, you know, that raised the speed limit back up. So there was a lot of that kind of wheeling and dealing going on to make this something that a Mitch McConnell would want to vote for or that a Dick Cheney would vote for and a Newt Gingrich would vote for because all of them voted against Reagan for this bill. So I assume what you me must hear all the time is, well, we could never do this today. The politics of today have gotten so much worse. Um, But but I guess my question is, are are you sure that's true? And and Hmm. it's a couple of data points. One is um, building affordable housing in many ways, I think, is sort of today's version of a lot of the highway construction from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, you know, we did see in California, for example, um, Newsom and the Democrats passed laws that took away a lot of the ability of local communities to block projects yeah. because, you know, they realized they just could never get the underlying yeah. projects themselves done. And then both, as you said, in, in the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, even though both were mainly Democratic or only Democratic votes, um, there is a lot of money now allocated to construction and we're never going to have any hope uh, of dealing with climate change without massively funded, you know, carbon capture plants and things like that. And so is it hopeless? Or if like today, people from the climate world came to you and said, okay, and based on everything you learned, how do we get a thousand carbon capture plants built in this country? What would you tell them? Wow. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the big dig offers a lot of plenty of cause for cynicism. Um, and there's, you know, I did a, a live event at Boston City Hall a few weeks ago, or last month with a bunch of their planners. We had a conversation around the big dig. And one of them said to me afterwards, like, I can't imagine doing a project of this scale today. Like, you know, we try and add a bike lane <laughs> and we're bogged down in meetings for a year. You know, the idea of taking on something this big feels really daunting. So, on the one hand, it, it does feel like building things is a muscle. You know, it's a political muscle. It's an institutional muscle, right? It's a technical muscle. And in some ways, 
we have let that atrophy um, and we've made it harder to build things. And now, but on the optimism side, I think the thing you have to remember about the big dig is that it did actually get built. Yeah. Um, it navigated, you know, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Um, and it still did get finished. So at the same time that it offers a lot of cynicism, I think it is in, in many ways um, uh, a model or something to look at for inspiration. And in terms of, you know, building housing, building climate, um, I think part of what's so interesting about this moment is that, you know, the politics of building things it, the the pendulum seems to be swinging in swinging back, you know, in, a, in an interesting way where, you know, for many decades, we made it progressively harder and harder to build things, you know, adding more layers of review, um, more, you know, environmental permitting, things like that for very good reason. Um, but we're now confronted with a moment where we need to build housing. As you said, we need to build, um, you know, green energy and other things that will help to mitigate or pre prevent the worst effects of climate change. Um, and so it does seem like there is a, a new kind of pressure, um, in, including and especially on the left, to make it easier to build things, um, which is interesting. And I think it, it remains to be seen how that will play out. But I think there is there is cause for hope. When when I remember, I forget which Olympics it was. But, you know, the Olympics are often sort of justified by the people who support it as a way to force a lot of infrastructure to get done that otherwise wouldn't right. get done. Right. And then I remember the people of Boston, I guess it was brought to them for a vote of, do we want to pursue yeah. And they said, no. 2024. Right. It would have been next year. <laughs> so uh, how much of that is influenced by the legacy of the Big Dig? That's interesting. You know, there are a lot of people I talked to who said that this project really did have a chilling effect for, for many years afterwards um, and made it harder to invest in mass transit and harder to, to just even conceive of the government being entrusted with a large project, a large responsibility. I'm trying to, I remember when that discussion was happening because it was almost 10 years ago now, right? It would have yeah. been like 2013, 14, something. I'm trying. I've. I don't remember. I wasn't even thinking about the big dig at the time. I. I don't recall if that was specifically invoked. But I have to imagine that the shadow of the big dig does, did hang over those conversations right. in some way. Although it's funny because I, I. Most of our listeners don't live in Boston, right? Yeah. And yet most of our listeners probably travel to Boston for business, you know, sometimes, right, or pleasure or whatever it is. Yeah. And you know, just to remind all the listeners. When you have that ride in from Logan to wherever you're going, you're like, oh, that wasn't bad yeah. compared to trying to get in from O'Hare or JFK or right, LAX. Right. The big thing is why, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it has had a substantially meaningful impact in Boston's long-term economy. So it, would you say the pain was worth it? Ooh, I, I try not to like come down too hard on either side of this because there, there are definitely different viewpoints. Yep. But I'll, I'll tell you what some very smart people have told me, which is that, you know, if you look at like property values and business development and job creation and innovation that's happened in downtown Boston in the last 15 years since the project was created, that the project was absolutely worth it. Um, if you look at 
so in Boston, we there's this part of uh, the city called the Seaport District that before the Big Dig was essentially parking lots and warehouses. Um, because of the Big Dig, the Seaport District became one of the most accessible parts of the city. It was immediately accessible to the airport, immediately accessible to downtown and points west. Um, now there's a major convention center there. GE moved its world headquarters there and then moved its headquarters away at some point, long story. Um, I mean, biotech, pharma, um, there's all kinds of stuff there now. So in some ways, I mean, the Big Dig has created um, incredible economic value. Um, I don't want to, but I don't want to make it sound like there are no criticisms of the effects of that. Um, you can certainly criticize the way that the real estate development happened in those areas. You know, obviously, some a lot of people have been subsequently priced out of living in those areas. Um, yes, it's easier to drive in and through downtown Boston, but our transit is still, you know, deeply flawed. The mass transit, I mean. Um, so a lot of people will point to the big dig and say, you know, that was just us doubling down on cars when we should have been you know, thinking about alternate modes of transportation. So I think there's, you know, if we really step back, this you can there's a lot you can question. But if if you just look at the project, like did it deliver on what it said it was going to do, which is make it easier to get in and out of Boston and improve the land, you know, make the land around the project more livable, then yeah, it absolutely did. So I, I live here in New York City and e even today Decades and decades after his death, and I'm sure you can see where his question's going, you know, Robert Moses is still this incredibly yeah. present and polarizing figure. Yeah. Right? And, and people argue some that, you know, he, he was just a, a racist and a disaster in every way. Others will say, yeah, he was not a great guy, but to get all this stuff done, that's what it took. Yeah. Uh, so you had really, in, in, in from what I could tell in listening to it, you had, you had one guy, Jim Carasiotis, who kind of had a Moses-esque personality in some yeah. ways. But overall, it didn't feel like there was this one overriding bureaucratic sort of manipulation genius yeah. that managed to mastermind the whole thing. Um, and and it, is that because that's the reality of everything. And then Moses just gets sort of either vilified or, or mm -hmm. kind of beatified in ways that just weren't realistic. Or was there something specific to the politics and culture of Boston that didn't require an 800 pound sort of gorilla in the same way? Yeah. So I would say a few things. There are a couple towering figures in this story. Jim Carasiotis is one. Fred Salvucci is the other. Yeah, but Salvucci um, doesn't seem bad. He's like a pretty thoughtful guy. Yeah, you know? he, he does not have the Moses type power broker personality. Right. Um, what's interesting about Salvucci? It, so Salvucci, you know, if you haven't listened, is basically the the architect of the Big Dig, who politically puts together the coalition and sets it in motion. What's interesting is that he is, in some ways, an anti Moses figure. He's this kind of soft-spoken guy. He's very, very attentive to community, neighborhood concerns. Um, like, you know, he grew up in a neighborhood of Boston that was torn apart by highways. But at the same time, he is a kind of 
power broker. And several people I interviewed described him to me as Machiavellian, right? In his capacity to kind of, you know, manipulate, pull strings to make things happen. So I guess what I would say is that Moses is not the only template for a powerful, you know, political actor who can make infrastructure happen. Fred Salvucci is a really interesting counterexample of a very different style, but also extremely effective, at least effective in terms of getting things done. The other thing I would say is that it is, it's unusual to have one figure who spearheads a project from conception to completion. Because you, you know, usually the way infrastructure works, and this is actually something that Fred Savucci has said to me before, these things are conceived under one administration, designed under another, funded under a third, permitted under a fourth, you know, built under a fifth and opened, under, you know, that these things have very long life cycles, much longer than the life cycle of a politician or an election cycle, right? And so in some ways it's, it's normal to have an ensemble cast of characters who move a big project along. And the only way it survives that is if there is strong political will behind it that transcends any one person. Um, because again, those Moses type figures who truly can carry a project all the way across the finish line, I think those are the exception. Yeah, and, and maybe in, in today's world, in, in impossibility. So yeah. last question, this is your second, as I understand, like really successful podcast series. You had one before this called Forever is a Long Time about marriage mm -hmm. and divorce. Very beloved. Yeah, this one. So what's the next one? Yeah, I have a few projects in the works. Um, as you mentioned, I, I like to work on projects with very different topics. I'm not planning to double down on infrastructure and, yeah. and do another epic about highways or, or trains or something, although it's a subject I could come back. The high-speed rail in California or something like yeah, that. Yeah, people around here keep asking me if I'm going to do one about the Boston subway, which would be a saga in itself, um, yeah. but one that I'm not quite ready to dive into. Um, so I'll tell you, the... The idea I'm working on most right now is actually a, another personal story and a musical story. Um, I'm interested in doing something about the musical The Wiz. I don't okay. know if you're familiar with this, but it was the, the version of The Wizard of Oz that opened on Broadway in the 70s with an all-black cast and like a Motown score, basically. So I, when I was in high school, I, like I said, I grew up in Massachusetts. In my high school which was mostly white in a mostly white town, did a production of The Wiz. That was my senior year musical. Were you in it? I was in the pit band. Okay. Uh, I was playing guitar. And so I'm interested in exploring um, sort of the legacy of that show, what it means to stage it in different communities and different places, uh, and specifically the, sort of the story of that production in my high school. So, that's what well, I'm working all right. on. Well, whatever it's, whatever it's going to be, I know it's going to be pretty awesome. So, Ian, thank you for joining us. Congratulations. I, I think My it's pleasure. pretty clear to the listeners how much I enjoyed the Big Dig. Uh, put it this way, if, if you like Firewall, this podcast, you'll, you're going to love the Big Dig. So, Ian, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. 
Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.